0: Video recordings of this podcast can be found on raisingequity.org and raisingequity on YouTube.
1: Welcome to Raising Equity. Today we're going to talk about who gets to be angry, who's rushed to forgive. In the aftermath of racial incidents and traumatic shootings, I think it's important for us to reflect on how we cope. What sort of ways do we cope as adults? And then how do we support kids? How do we talk to kids about these racial incidents that are happening? So I have with me today, a friend and sorority sister, Dr. Jamika. She owns her own private practice, Emergent Psychological Services. She's also the director of the Applied Educational Psychology and School Psychology Programs at Webster University, on the board of the Missouri Psychological Association and a past president of the Association of Black Psychologists, chapter here in St. Louis. So I'm really happy that you're here with me. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Jamaica.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So this question of, right, in the aftermath of these incidents, you know, what are the different ways that people cope? How do we, what do you see after, after there's a shooting or some sort of racial incident that's happening in society? What are people coming in talking about?
0: I think the sad part is that these incidents are happening so frequently. So frequently. I don't hear people coming in to speak about it a whole bunch. Actually, I think people are so desensitized to it that they're more focused on the types of issues that are going on in their daily lives, which mostly supersedes it. And then secondarily, they might talk about it but mm-hmm. it could play into their anger but usually it's something else that's prominent in their lives. Mhm. Mm-hmm. And that makes sense. I'm also thinking back
1: to when we really were in the trenches together in the Association of Black Psychologists um chapter here in St. Louis after Mike Brown's murder. And the what I remember is there was almost like a a a, a rage. Mhm that I heard a lot of white clinicians in particular not know how to sit with. And so maybe, like you said, they're happening so frequently, people are becoming desensitized. But I feel like sometimes when it hits really close to home, mm-hmm. it, it, it causes people to, to um, what's the word? Like simmer, The rage that they have is so palpable yes. that they don't know what to do with it.
0: yes. And we did see that around Ferguson. I remember being here and what that was like. You felt it. It's almost like you felt it in the air Um, everywhere. Well, I can't say everywhere, but definitely for the people of color. And it was something that kind of simmered with them for a, a long time, maybe a year or years. It could still be simmering. So for us here in St. Louis, we all felt it. So I don't know if these other incidents that happen in other cities impact us in the same ways. That it did because this was local for us and Mm -hmm. it was on our local news. When I talk about this to my students, I take them back five years and say, do you remember how often this was on the news, on local news and national news? So for us living in St. Louis, it was every, you couldn't turn any channel and not see it. You couldn't turn any channel and not see Mike Brown's body laying in the middle of the street. And that was a great deal of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. It actually makes me
1: think about some of the research we have around Mm 9-11, that some people who were not there, but who watched it Mm -hmm. on TV and were exposed to it, Mm -hmm. had similar psychological, elevated psychological symptoms.
0: Yes, I believe that. Because I think trauma, and if you go and look at the DSM, it says you don't have to actually experience the trauma to be traumatized or to be diagnosed with PTSD. You could have witnessed it or could have been told about it by someone else. 9-11 Nine Eleven definitely qualifies. It was everywhere.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think it's important for us to realize that in some ways, even though these incidents aren't happening in our town, that it's vicarious. Yes. I think about the um, Amy Geiger, Botham Jean case that mm-hmm. just ended. Mm-hmm. And
0: that was gripping for a lot of folks. It was. And triggering. Yes. For lots of people like... I know when I thought about it, when the, fir- the case first happened, I remember thinking, gosh, this could have been anyone. This could have been any of us sitting in our home and having someone wrongfully come into your apartment or your home and kill you. It- it's a very scary thing. So, yes, we were happy that she was convicted. And the 10 years, eh, we weren't really happy about that. But now to know that she's appealing, it's a little bit crazy. Mm. That's like the icing on the cake. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I had mixed feelings about it because like on the one hand, you see people have the signs of like things black people can't do. Like sit in their yes. home and eat ice cream. Right. Sit in their car. Uh, the list is too long. Be in Walmart. Right. Like there's the list is just so long. Um, and so there it is it is triggering in that sense of like we can't be safe
0: anywhere. Because where is that list of things we can do? What is Exactly. There's not a list cuz there's right. nothing we
1: can do. Right. I mean even recently like you can't be in your home playing video games. Yeah. Right? Like with mm-hmm. your nephew, right? And so there is a piece of me that was saddened by that. I'm I'm a kind of an abolitionist at heart, so mm-hmm. I don't I don't rejoice when anyone goes to prison because I don't think prison is about reform in our society. And it's not. Right? And it was it was in the sense that our laws are set up and people are supposed to be held accountable in the same ways. It, it makes sense that she was convicted, but yeah. what people made such a big deal about? Remember her, bro- his brother
0: oh, hugging yes. her. Yes, the forgiveness.
1: Right. And so, what were your what were your thoughts when you saw that?
0: I had a hard time with that one because I thought about if it was my brother or sister, would I have reacted in that way? No, I could forgive her one day in my heart, but would I have done it publicly? No. And I have my I guess my reasons would have been like, I don't want to tell my community that this person is off the hook. I would not want to have sent any message Mm. directly or indirectly that this person is off the hook Mm -hmm. or does she or that she does not need to be held accountable for. So I would have been careful about that.
1: Right. Yeah. And, you know, as I watched it, like I think about forgiveness as being something that you do for yourself, Mm -hmm. not just for the other person. Mm -hmm. So they're clearly was something in him that made him feel like, I need to do this for me. I'm assuming, you I'm think. assuming, but my, my, the, my, um, hang up, the rub for me mm-hmm. was that so often and the way that that picture and that footage got played yeah. as black folks, we get pushed to forgive. Yes. Like, no one wants to sit with the rage. No, no one wants to sit with the anger. No, but we really just want to focus on, we'll go ahead and forgive that person. Mm-hmm. And it, and what gets me is it also falls into the, like the individual analysis of things rather than thinking about systemic, mm-hmm. right? Like the whole system's broken. So whether I forgive this person or not, like it's not a it's not
0: just about these individual acts, right? It's about the community. So that would have been my issue, yeah. But I also didn't knock him for doing it because, like you said, forgiveness sometimes is about the person. Maybe he needed to get that off his chest to feel better, to sleep better at night maybe that's what he was taught that maybe that's how he was raised maybe that's part of their religion i'm not sure
1: yeah i don't know but i do i do think a lot about like who gets to who gets to be angry like whose anger gets to be tolerated and whose doesn't
0: well not black folks
1: yeah yeah there was a researcher there's a researcher i think his last name is martin who does research on anger and he talked about the fact that we often think of it as a bad emotion like mm-hmm. something we don't want that causes us problems that we have to work to manage and then actually we should be appreciative of our anger because mm-hmm. it can cue us into places where there's injustice yes where we want to maybe be motivated to change things mm-hmm. and that our anger should be understood as as possibly a helpful it's a, just like our sadness mm-hmm. is is pointing to maybe a grief or a loss or something we long for, our anger is also pointing us towards injustice and yes. places where we want change. And so to not think of it as a bad emotion. I don't know, in your practice, do you find people who are feeling like they don't want to touch their anger or their anger is bad?
0: Yes. But I see that mostly from women. Interesting. I don't see that a lot from my male patients. Mm-hmm. Well, and
1: that makes sense. I mean, guys are socialized. Like it's, it's almost more acceptable for them to be angry,
0: then they for women. They can be angry. Mm-hmm. They don't have a problem with it. But women, they're like, um, I shouldn't be angry. And I'll be like, yeah, you should. Mm-hmm. You should. Mm-hmm. This is the time. But I think for women in this country, we don't often know when that time is. When is the time that I'm supposed to be angry internally mm-hmm. or visibly? And mm-hmm. two different things. But for women, the society tells us we should never really be angry externally. Right, like because, we shouldn't show that. Yeah, because that looks bad. You look like an angry, especially for a Black women. You look like an angry Black woman. Right, and you don't want that title. Right,
1: yeah, but I, I guess in my in the last few years, I've been doing some work with generative somatics, which is a really hmm. amazing kind of politicized healing theory of change mm-hmm. and an embodiment of new practices, thinking mm-hmm. about. Okay. As we dismantle these systems of oppression, Mm -hmm. what practices are we putting in place to step into what we're trying to create? Mm. And they talk a lot about anger being generative. And just like, you know, love is a very powerful emotion. Mm -hmm. So is anger. And people talk about, oh, I can't touch my anger. That's like caused genocides and wars. Well, so is love. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we don't shy away from that. Mm -hmm. Right. Huh. So in your practice, do you work with any children?
0: I don't work with children mm-hmm. or teens. I only work with adults so anyone over 18. But I do work with a great deal of geriatric patients as well. Mm-hmm. So, But across the board, anger is just not something that we're socialized as people of color to feel, to experience, or to express. Yeah, yeah.
1: So what do you tell people to encourage them to, to be able to tolerate that emotion that we all have?
0: Well, I try to encourage them to sit with it, to be with it, to feel it, to journal about it, to maybe talk about it, um, to maybe do something to, to get it out. Whether it's fitness, a good exercise is boxing for that. For angry people or for people who have anger issues, um, boxing is good because it gives you a target. It gives you something to, to release the anger on. So I talk to them about different ways. Sometimes in families, though, it's um, conversations that need to be had. Like what? Like some of my patients that have been sexually assaulted by family members. But there's never been that acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes conversations need to be had. I don't know if it's mediation, but conversations need to be had where there is some acknowledgement of their pain or abuse. And lots of times that hasn't happened. Mm -hmm.
1: The people don't want to touch it. They They don't want to touch it.
0: Mm, No, I didn't tell because she wouldn't believe me. I don't want to tell as an adult because they still won't believe me. Or I did tell when I was a child and they didn't believe me and they told me to just uh, sweep it under the rug and get Mm -hmm. over it. Mm -hmm. Or I was abused by multiple family members and I still continue to go to the same family functions 30 years later with with those people because that's what I'm expected to do. Mm -hmm. So it's that type of um, really minimizing their pain Mm -hmm. and their suffering because they feel like there is not a space for it. Right. Right. Gosh.
1: So I'm thinking back to what we were talking about in terms of Black people's anger, anger not being tolerated after these racial incidents. Mm-hmm. What are some ways that we can, can make space for it? Like you said, you know, around sexual assault, there's some conversations that need to be had. Like, what do we need? What conversations do we need to be having in our community or in our families about navigating these racially traumatic events?
0: Well, I think what you just said is a, is a key point for people of color sometimes we start by having these conversations in our homes with our family members with friends sometimes in our communities we can have these conversations and i think the conversations is really the first step where it all starts before any change really occurs so
1: talk about it rather than just try to act like it's not happening because some people will say well they're kids we want them to remain innocent we don't want to talk about it we want them to be in a bubble but I think what you're saying is we should assume that they know what's going on. Yes. Whether it's hearing it on the news and the radio or on TV, that we shouldn't assume that they're clueless.
0: Right. Yeah. We should assume, especially with internet, social media, that they are not clueless. Because even if you don't allow your child to have a phone or a computer, they're going to school with everyone else who does. So mm-hmm. someone's going to tell them something. Mm-hmm. So we have to start having these conversations with children because otherwise we tend to perpetuate the type of Injustices and abuses that have occurred in our families and in our communities for years. Mm-hmm. Um, so children, like I said, patients who are adults and still feel like they can't even acknowledge their abuse from a family member, that is because of this whole, what we've been taught about. Don't disrespect your elders. You don't tell your adults or your elders that they were wrong. Mm-hmm. And you definitely don't tell family secrets. That's a big part of it as mm-hmm. well.
1: Mm-hmm. hmm do you talk to your boys about what's happening in the world with the racial incidents that are occurring?
0: Yes, we talk about it a lot. Um, we don't necessarily watch the news in my house because I'm not a news watcher, but um, I learn about a lot from Internet, social media. And as I these cases come up, I talk to them about it and see what their thoughts are, because I want to empower them and equip them with information and thoughts so that they can then go out into the world and have conversations about these issues and at least have thought about it before their peers bring it up.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd be curious to hear some of what you talk to them about. And I know Mm -hmm. with my boys, I I have a right now a 10 year old and a 12 year old. And so Mm -hmm. I try to make, make the conversations age appropriate. Mm -hmm. Um, The 12 year old is quite aware about what's going on in the world and is on social media more. So we'll see headlines come through and the younger one is less connected in that way. And so, um, you know, I think one of the things we try to talk to them about is that as black boys in the world, they they might have a stimulus value for some people. Mm -hmm. And so some people might make assumptions about them, but Mm -hmm. that that's not theirs to carry, Mm -hmm. that I want them to be aware of it, but for them to understand that there's nothing wrong with being who they are. Yes. I don't want them to walk around the world clueless Mm -hmm. that people might have a negative View on black boys, especially as they're growing into their teenage years and they're getting taller and out in the world and, and you know, we're wearing a hoodie or just mm-hmm. being. Um, but I try to make sure I separate those ideas that people have from who
0: they are. Mm-hmm. Do you have those similar
1: conversations? I
0: do. And I tell you, one of the scary parts of raising boys is that black boys in particular is that, like, my oldest one is driving now. He has a car and he drives. So what you remember the conversations before they get into the car the first time have to be, what do you do if you get stopped? This is what you do. Insurance, license, registration, hands here, do this, call me, don't do this. Speak in this tone, speak at this pace. It's all very real because if they get pulled over nine times out of 10, it's probably going to be by a non cop, I mean, a non-color cop. So Mm -hmm. they have to know what to do and what's going to be seen as acceptable. Mm -hmm. So um, that also comes with the conversation of the same thing that you said, which is you're going to be seen by the world as a black man, even though here in the house, you're just a teenager. You're just a boy, but the world is going to see you, especially by height. If they're tall, Mm -hmm. they're going to see you as a black man and treat you as such.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, And the reality is it's, it's about the system of policing. So it could be it could be a black police officer.
0: And still get similar treatment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Because they've been socialized in a way to like have these assumptions and make these connections, especially here in St. Louis, um, where there are police officers who will say, yeah, I want to be where the action is. Like assuming, because there are lots of black people in North St. Louis and in places of St. Louis, that, that there's going to be action. Like that's something yes. they're seeking and wanting to engage in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're kind of rare in to to engage, which often ends up being a power struggle and not ending
0: well for citizens. Not ending well. So that those conversations have to be had, especially in the St. Louis area, because you've heard it, I've heard it. Different municipalities have different rules about driving, different law enforcement techniques. Like I can't tell you how many of my patients or their sons, they've told me that my son has been stopped numerous times. And it just so happened that one time my 17 year old son was stopped and I was behind him when the cops stopped him. So I was able to get in and see what was going on, but had I not been behind him, who knows what would have happened. So I hear those stories a lot about certain municipalities in the St. Louis area where it's more likely to occur. Mm -hmm.
1: And it's interesting to me. So I study discrimination, right? Mm -hmm. And how it impacts mental health that oftentimes when people are coming into therapy, they'll talk about these interactions, these encounters, but they don't often make the connection to how it's impacting them psychologically or emotionally.
0: They never make the connection. You're probably usually the first person to tell them that there is a connection like I am. When I see them in therapy, I'm like, well, you know, like A and B are connected. Like the reason you have these migraines every day is probably because of this. They're like, really? Why do you think so? And then I'll lay it out for them and Then they'll be like, oh, okay," but they've never because I think as as black people, we haven't been taught and raised to be sick, really to be Mm -hmm. victims. Well, I, I
1: think also it's it's in our experiences. Any person who has a marginalized background, you have to find a way to keep living. Right. So So part of my research is understanding that not everyone who's experiencing discrimination has negative mental health effects. Mm -hmm. And so I want to try to understand like who, when, where, why, so that we can maybe buffer people from the Mm. negative effects. And if we find out ways that helps people cope, we can exacerbate, you know, we can increase that sort of resilience or coping. Um, So what have you found so far with that? Like who,
0: who... Fairs better,
1: right? So, in terms of racial identity, mm-hmm. which we both have an interest in, uh, people who are at greatest risk for experiencing discrimination, mental health symptoms in the context of discrimination, mm-hmm. are people who um, see themselves see race as a central part of who they are, but mm. ideologically really want to be a part of mainstream. Oh, and so I think about that as like kids at the lunch table in the mm-hmm. in the ca- in the cafeteria, right? Like if I am quite comfortable being at the drama table or the orchestra table, and I don't need to sit at the cool kid's table. Like I, I don't need that. I, it's a part of who I am that I'm a drama kid. Mm-hmm. And ideologically, I don't need to be at that cool kid table. Mm-hmm. If I get rebuffed, if I experience discrimination from that table, I don't internalize that necessarily mm-hmm. as being about me. I might just be like, well, that's what they do. That's the dynamic. Yeah. But if I really ideologically like want to be at that table and it means something to be at that table mm-hmm. and I experience discrimination, mm-hmm. I might internalize that to be like there's something uh, wrong with me because uh, I really wanted that. I didn't I was discriminated against because I'm at this other table and that we my thinking and there's some other research that supports it. Mm-hmm. Is that that's where we see the biggest psychological effect. Oh, wow. So the people who, for whom race is really central to who they are mm-hmm. and how they see themselves actually report experiencing more discriminatory events, mm-hmm. but less psychological distress. So they see it because mm-hmm. they're noticing it and yeah. it's important to who they are. But there's something about that centrality that's like protective. Mm. But when we mix in things like, how, ideo- ideologically, how do you think Black people should be? Should they be assimilating? Should they be nationalists, have their own stuff? Should mm-hmm. they be connected to other racial and ethnic groups? When you start to mix those things in, it gets com- it gets more complicated. So mm. you know, there's some research that suggests that we should be having these conversations with kids because mm. them understanding systemic racism mm-hmm. is a way for them to realize, oh, that's about that. That's their stuff. It's not my stuff, mm. right? and we also know from racial socialization literature that we want to balance our barrier messages with our um at, with not having too many messages that are only about barriers and not having positive messages about what it means to be that group in that group right
0: that is important
1: yeah so it if is. you only know that it's hmm. that people who are queer are at increased risk for uh, for depression and anxiety and mm-hmm. and suicide and all these things, if you only know the barriers that you're going to hit and the things that are going to go wrong, that that's not as good. That no. sh- You can know the barriers, but you've got to also know the positive stories.
0: Mm-hmm. That's important. So it sounds like what you're saying is that if racial identity is important to them and they want to be a part of mainstream, those are the people who have more negative mental health.
1: Yes, in the context oh. of discrimination. So when oh, they wow. experience discrimination, they have more severe depressive and anxiety symptoms in people who are um, racist really central, but they they ideologically feel like they can be connected to other people of color. They Black people maybe could have their own stuff. And so they're not trying mm-hmm. to assimilate.
0: Well, that's important as far as teaching. Like, like you said, the younger generation, that's a good approach mm-hmm. to then hopefully uh, with the raising equity to try to raise individuals that do not, feel like they need to be in this mainstream life or group Mm -hmm. or in these different categories because the more freedom they have from that, then the more protective it'll be. Possibly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I would love for them to just understand what's happening systemically Mm -hmm. so that as they move into different positions of power, that that we can change the dynamics. Yes. Right? And so it would be great if, if, if it was not a matter of having to choose to assimilate or not, right? Like if people were respected for their cultural backgrounds, for their social identities, and didn't have to conform to one identity, kind of oftentimes the white norm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So white kids understanding how these dynamics work is important, not just kids who are kids of color, right? So for all kids to understand the game that's happening and that's being set up. And for them to decide, do they want to play that game? And I'm seeing, I'm seeing young people of, in all sorts of ways push against binaries and categories in ways that is that I think are amazing. And as these incidents happen, that mm-hmm. continue to like show the stark disparities of mm-hmm. how black bodies are treated. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to be able to analyze what's going on and to not just throw it away and be like, oh, that happened. It's about that one person. Well, can we see the pattern? Of what's happening. Oh, so yeah. that's what I try to talk to my kids about is like seeing the pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's also hard because my 10-year-old, he'll talk about just being scared sometimes. Mm-hmm. And that's real. That's And it is. Because adults are afraid too. And so as a parent, I've got to sit with that. And mm-hmm. I've got to know that there's some benefit in, in sharing with him what's happening on the larger scale. Mm-hmm. Uh I have to remind myself of that because it's hard to sit with my kid being scared. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he's scared about I mentioned nine eleven, right? He, they oh, learned yeah. about it. They learned about it at school. The mm-hmm. teachers told them where they were on nine eleven. We're oh. talking about going to New York. He has a dream about nine eleven oh, happening wow. while he's in New York, right? So I think I'm sharing that to say. That I don't think we should not talk about race, class, sexual orientation, gender identity Mm -hmm. for fear that they might get scared because they get scared about other things, too. And we support them and we know they need to know about 9-11 or Pearl Harbor or right. Like Mm -hmm. they they need to understand what's happening. So we need to be able to tolerate it
0: Mm -hmm.
1: around social identities.
0: Yeah. And it is hard as a parent, but you have to have the conversations because that's part of how you equip them with what they need to walk out the door into the world.
1: Yeah, yeah. As you were president of our chapter of the Association of Black Psychologists, Mm -hmm. like, is there anything that from your time in in that position that you would share with folks that you learned about being Black and being a psychologist?
0: I don't know if I learned it so much during that time, Um, but I can tell you what I did learn during that time is that we have some really... Um, good black psychologists in the city of St. Louis that are an older generation that did so much more um, social justice and work than we do. Mm. Um, like Dr. Williams and Dr. Cross and all those people, they, you know, they pulled together to have a community health center where they treated people um, years ago, like I in, didn't know that. in the Midtown area. I think it was right off of Union and Del Mar, um, where they, They treated African-American patients like in the 60s or 70s. That was so progressive. And um, I mean, these professionals came together to do that. So they were all psychologists. So those type of great things I learned about them and what they did and how they have instilled so much hope in us. And they're kind of sitting back waiting like, we want you to do all these things now because you have the money, you have the social media, you have all these things. And they're expecting these things to happen. But. It has been, it's been very difficult because we're all so busy now with all these other things that have come up. But, um, so I think that's probably the biggest thing I learned from them, like learning about what they did and and their expectations. Mm,
1: interesting. So feeling like a little bit of pressure yes. as the new generation that mm-hmm. we need to get our stuff together.
0: Yes. What to do? Because all these people have families and everything and careers and spouses, but they still found, found time to come together and do these things. And they had a really systemic approach to the city of St. Louis and how to treat mental health.
1: And to push back just a little bit,
0: these were men. Yes, they were men. So they had a spouse at home that were taking care of their children. Right. So, and I think they they maybe had one, one female. um, She was present and active. I'm not sure who was taking care of her kids or if she had kids. That's a good question. I'm not sure. Right. But just even thinking
1: generationally the expectations. That gender
0: privilege is always there. Yeah.
1: It's all intersecting. Yes. Yeah, so yeah.
0: but yeah, so a lot of different things like that um that I learned from them. And just since I was president of the AB chapter in St. Louis, uh, getting to meet so many other psychologists, so many young therapists and um people in the community who need help and possibly have a different way and a progressive way of treating people or um interacting with people in the community. I think that's been one of the best things too. hmm Yeah.
1: So post these traumatic events, what should people be on the lookout for in terms of their own symptoms?
0: Well, I would say the desensitization is one of the main things to look for this um, feeling of being numb to things I think can be a precursor to other bad things that can happen later. Uh, Similar to anything else, if you suppress any bad feelings or sad feelings for so long, at some point they're going to come out. And when they do, what is that going to look like? Mm-hmm. Who's going to be affected? What are you going to do? What are you going to say? So I think sometimes we're all inundated with these stories of these um, instances of injustice, and we don't often know where to put it. So we just don't. We don't put it anywhere. We just don't. We just don't deal with it. And
1: so that's kind of hard to notice in yourself if you're becoming desensitized. Mm-hmm. I guess that might that might speak to how we need to make sure we're also checking in with other people or having other people check in on us cuz mm-hmm. i might not see where i'm numb and desensitized mm-hmm. but someone else who's who knows me or is observing me or is close to me might see that
0: and i think it is hard to see especially if you're living in a house or a home or a community with people that are also desensitized mm. so it's hard it sometimes it takes someone who from maybe outside of your home or your community to see that um i had a patient not too long ago was um female patient african american I think in her 30s, and she, you could look at her and tell she's visibly angry and upset. And I, and I would say, So, what are you feeling right now? She'd say, Nothing. Nothing. I'm like, Okay, let's try this again. You're crying and shaking. What do you feel? Nothing. So, I think for us in our community, there's this issue of, you know, there's this term alexithymia mm-hmm. in the um, clinical psych literature that talks about the inability to express or experience or identify emotions. I mm-hmm. think a lot of us have that mm-hmm. from generations and years of not being able to express emotions Mm -hmm. because emotions are bad. They're inconvenient. They could get you killed in some instances, like if you think about civil rights and before. So we've been kind of taught and modeled to not have them Mm -hmm. to the point where we don't even recognize them when Mm -hmm. they exist now.
1: Well, it's not even not have them, but not be able to label them. We don't have the vocabulary.
0: We don't, even when we feel it. Right. What is that? I don't know what it is. You have to put
1: words to it, right? Right. Right. And it's interesting, because with kids they they can numb and and disconnect and disassociate, but oftentimes they externalize, yes. so with kids, you know, you might I do some work in schools, like you might have a kid who's running, you know fleeing the classroom mm-hmm. or the school, and they just seem like they're acting up or they're agitated, mm-hmm. and it really, it could be around trauma, like yes, there's one little boy who um one of I think his uncle was killed, and mm. uh. It was recent and he was just, he couldn't get settled and he was being disruptive and he Mm. was running around. And so if you don't think about it in the context of trauma, it just looks like this kid being bad Mm -hmm. and this kid being disobedient. So, you know, like I said, sometimes they might might have similar symptoms as adults, but oftentimes they're acting out Mm -hmm. rather than internalizing. Although Mm -hmm. some kids do internalize.
0: Yeah. Uh, Adults act out, but they act out in very different ways.
1: Well, and oftentimes drinking as a coping mechanism. So mm-hmm. if you're finding yourself wanting that drink more often than you did before, mm-hmm. that there's been research on the the link there between experiencing discrimination and using drinking as a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Drinking,
0: yeah. shopping. Mm. Because the shopping is really the precursor to the hoarding. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you have to shop to get the stuff, unless you do Amazon. I guess that's an option now. Um but so you have oh, yes. that. yes, it's an option. <laughs> Sex, partners. Like I see a lot of people who go from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship. That's a bit of an addiction as well. Like uh-huh. It could be a self-medicating type of behavior. Mm, and
1: so might be a clue to yourself that there's some emotional things you need to take care of.
0: hmm Yeah. Like you, to tell someone, you should probably be alone for the next year is a, a scary thing for them to hear. They're like, what do you, why would I be alone for a year? Like so that you can get yourself together. So I can't get myself together in a relationship? No, not, not in this way. Mm-hmm. You need to be together before you go into the relationship. Mm-hmm. So that's scary for people because they don't want that. Being mm-hmm. alone. You know, you think about TV, phone, social media, computers, all these things we have, it allows people to never have to sit still with quiet by themselves. And that's kind of how they like it. Because it's a way to escape.
1: Right. So that also could be another Another way to clue into yourself that it might be worth going to talk with someone if you're not able to sit and be with yourself.
0: Yes, that's a good clue.
1: So in addition to therapy and Mm -hmm. seeing a therapist, what are some other suggestions that you would give people to cope with the either trauma or stress or other sorts of intense emotions they're having?
0: Well, you know, lately, actually, one of the things I talk to my patients about a lot is fitness, like the role of fitness. And I'll ask them if they work out or they have a workout program, if they have a gym membership. And they'll. some of them say, yes, yes, but I don't use it. Or no, I just don't want to go. Or I don't have time to go. Mm-hmm. And then I start to pick apart, well, let's see all the other things you have time for. And then they're like, okay, so I do have time. <laughs> so um, fitness is a good thing. for So for people with anxiety, it's one of the best things they can do mm-hmm. is to work out because it gets rid of all that bodily energy they have. So then they don't have the energy to really be anxious or to have anxious thoughts or to be restless Mm -hmm. or irritable because it's gone. They've Mm -hmm. burnt it all off. So that's one of the best things they can do.
1: Yeah. And it's also good for mood, Mm -hmm. depressive symptoms because of the endorphins. Mm -hmm. And I have a colleague who does research on um, exercise and addictions and gambling.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's good for that too? Yes.
1: Yes. Well, if you think about it, it's similar to kind of with the anxiety um, it can curb some of the impulsivity. Mm. And they say that kids with ADHD also yes. need to make sure you keep them active. Yes. So it doesn't make the impulsivity go away. But it but, makes them too tired to do it. <laughs> with kids, for sure. With yes. adults, it, it can just help to kind of curb it mm-hmm. enough so that they can then decide to not gamble mm-hmm. or not engage with this addictive behavior. Yeah. Uh, it just gives them a few more seconds of decision-making. Think about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So diet is another thing, too, that I tell my patients a lot about. I always try to sit and look at what are you eating every day? Because what you're eating could impact how you feel. You could feel bad because you eat bad. When you eat a lot of processed fry foods, a lot of sugary drinks and foods, it's just not good. So I talk to them about that. Sleep is important. And we have to work on everyone doesn't have good sleep or sleep patterns. Um, so I talk about that. Um usually, medication is the last thing we go to because there's so many other things in um modern society that they can do, acupuncture. Um, I recommend that a lot for patients, especially if they have anxiety. Um, sometimes chronic pain, I recommend that for pain, too. So I try to do a lot of things to get them on track in addition to talking about things that they maybe have never talked about before. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that's good for people to know because they mm-hmm. often think about therapy as this kind of uh, very Eurocentric, centric, luxurious thing where they just go and talk about their problems. Mm-hmm. But for them to know that therapy can also be about problem-solving and mm-hmm. it can, can be solution-focused and you might even be referred out to some other activities or mm-hmm. practitioners that it doesn't have to just be sitting back on a couch talking about your feelings mm-hmm. uh, because that can feel overwhelming to some folks.
0: Yes, and and again, it could be too much... Pressure to identify things that you don't even know are there, mm-hmm. that's a lot because if you haven't felt or expressed these emotions, and then you're put on the spot and be like, "So, what is this? What is this? That can be a lot. Mm-hmm. So sometimes the conversation centers around many, many other things that are directly or indirectly related to their core issues mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and I'd say for kids, it's just important to know that there are therapists for kids. Like if you see your kid is is having anxiety or worries that that Impact and ha- impact their life and mm-hmm. have an impact on their on their daily activities. That they also can go to a therapist and they sometimes do play therapy. Yeah,
0: that's a good one for kids. Yeah, art therapy is a good one for kids. Yep. Um, and a lot of the the therapists or counselors that work with kids have this huge toolbox of things that they pull from, which could be music, play, art, movement, other things. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a good thing. They have to be really skilled on what they do because it's not easy. To get information from kids it's right. much easier for me to get information from adults because adults are skilled at talking right and answering questions and digging deeper kids they don't have those same skills, yeah, yeah
1: well interesting i'm I'm appreciative that you came and talked to us because I think sometimes we don't reflect on how we cope after these incidents. Mm-hmm. they just happen, and like you said, we, we become desensitized, we become inundated. there's one more incident, there's one more comment, there's one more shooting yeah and it is exhausting and so sometimes we just disengage mm-hmm. but then there also are other ways that that might be maladaptive that we're dealing with things so i appreciate you sharing with us
0: thank you yeah
1: so if people want to follow you or learn more about you or your practice how can they find you
0: you can find my website at com. on facebook it is dr j psychdoc and on Instagram, it's the Dr. Jamika. Awesome. Awesome.
1: Well, thank you all for joining me. Hopefully, you've gotten some time to reflect on how you cope after we've been inundated with incident after incident. What's coming up for you? How can you reflect on your own behaviors and maybe do something to support yourself, to support your resilience, to support the resilience in the young people that you have in your lives? Because we all are impacted and we all have different ways of coping. It's a matter of being intentional about making sure we're supporting ourselves through our coping strategies. So thanks for joining me on Raising Equity.